on the road Must have a code That you can live by And so Become yourself Because the past Is just a goodbye Teach Your children well Education is one of the most important weapons in a country. We wanted to transform education into a national asset, into an instrument we can use for development. And I agree, our noblest act as a society is to prepare our children for their future, to inspire them, motivate them, encourage them to pursue a path in life that has a purpose, that feeds their passion, while also providing them with a livelihood. And to do so, we need to create learning environments that spark their curiosity, their creativity, make their eyes shine, give them an opportunity to collaborate and critically think and problem solve, and come together as one human race. I don't have the answers, but I know someone who does. His name's Dwayne Matthews. You know, I'm like, why, why would I create a space that looks like a school? Um, I don't want kids to be in the box. I want them to, to have different experiences that are otherworldly, that really stretch their imagination, that are creative and beautiful. And his ideas for education are exciting, powerful, and profound. They will not only teach our children well, but they'll also inspire them on a lifelong journey to learn. And he joins me today to talk about why education matters. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. When Fortune 500 companies want to learn about the evolution of work and the future of education, they turn to Dwayne Matthews. He's a sought-after guest in the media, a sought-after speaker at major conferences. He stood at the podium talking to people like the Conference Board of Canada and the United Nations. He's an innovation evangelist, a future education strategist, and he's helping school boards and educators and parents understand new and evolving themes for the 21st century. He's all about teaching our children well. Dwayne Matthews, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Tony, thank you very much for having me. And uh, that was a, a really well-said introduction. I, I appreciate it a lot. It's very kind of you. Thank you very much. All right, you're welcome. So, Dwayne, you were born in Toronto, but you moved to your parents' home country of Trinidad and Tobago at age two. I'm curious, what motivated the move? Back when, and, and I'm going to age myself a little bit, but in 1976... Um, what was the oil crisis in a lot of the Western country was an oil opportunity in Trinidad and Tobago where my parents are from. And uh, so I went back to Trinidad and Tobago when I was young. I, I spent a, a bunch of years there. I, I came back to Toronto at 15. Uh, it's 14 and a half. It's an interesting story about how I came back. But um, a lot of my formative years were in Trinidad and Tobago, and I have very, very fond memories and, you know, align myself a lot with that culture as well. So talk to me a little bit about that, because I'm always fascinated with people that have the sort of citizens of the world and in their knapsack, they pack these different insights and ideas, then they parlay into a new society. What did you think you really took away from your time there that you feel really, in many ways, is instrumental with your passion today in terms of uh, education? I grew up in a country not ever feeling like a minority. Um, so I, I didn't have that sense. And I also grew up in a country at the time when 
you know, there was no real reason to identify me by color. I didn't grow up thinking I'm black. I didn't grow up thinking I'm a visible minority. I grew up just being Trinidadian at the time. I'm, I'm sure a lot of that's changed. That really impacted how uh, I interacted when I came here to Canada um, because I, I had certain ideas about who I was as a person and, and what I was capable of. The other is that um, I, I grew up in um, a, a very interesting family, all the different types of pieces uh, that we had in our family. And so, you know, I, I have three younger cousins that are gifted. One of the guys that, uh, that grew up with us in our street is the president of Howard University. He, uh, you know, he's advised Kamala Harris, Barack Obama, and a bunch of other people. So there's a certain notion about what was possible for me um, that was sort of planted in my mind at, at a very young age. So by the time I came here, you know, I, I had a, a, a little bit of a nuanced perspective as to what was possible for me. You come back to Canada just before high school. That's a tough time to move. You're coming in with this sense of confidence. You're surrounded with a lot of gifted people. You've got this energy from where you're coming into. You must have hit a bit of a wall when the reality of what Canada was and suddenly becoming that minority. There was a lot of headwind when I got here. And a lot of the headwind was, you know, some things were, were structural that I didn't yet understand. The saying, ignorance is bliss, um, was, was, was probably quite helpful. But then some of the things were, were quite nuanced, right? Um, a, a, you know, one example, I can remember I went to a school, Harvard Collegiate, and I might have been maybe 25% of the entire black population there. The first thing that the gym teacher said to me was, oh my gosh, you know, we, we got a basketball player. The, the school at the time, you know, it, it, their basketball team, they really wanted, you know, I was tall. I was probably about, I don't know, maybe 5'9", five, 5'10". Five, and uh, so they were so convinced that I was going to be fantastic at basketball. You know, he sort of grabbed me and said, you're going to try it for the basketball team. And I'd never played basketball in my life. As a, as a matter of fact, to this day, I'll get pretty vulnerable with you. To this day, I don't think I've actually seen a complete game of LeBron James play or Kobe Bryant play. It's, it's just sort of not my thing. And so immediately, I, I sort of got a sense of that, right? I was more into chess. I was into swimming. But there wasn't that expectation of me when I came. And the other expectation was um, a lot of people in high school really worked hard to try and create an identity for themselves and for you. So people would ask, you know, are you, are you this? Do you do this? Like they had these expectations. It was curious for me because I, I didn't really feel fully a part of the society in any sense. And I didn't feel a part of the Caribbean community that was here either. Uh, because most of the people that I'd interacted with when I got here were people that were second generation Canadians of Caribbean descent which was a little bit different than my experience. So one of the things about me is that I, I spent a lot of time before I got to Canada in an oil refinery. My grandfather worked in, uh, in, in the oil company in Trinidad and Tobago, and we had a, he had a place on the oil refinery. So I'd spend my summers there, but I spent my summers alone. So I spent a lot of time sort of reflecting at what I was seeing in front of me and never really feeling like I fit in anywhere what seemed like a painful component of childhood seemed really helpful once I got here because I, I always feel like, like I'm curiously observing what's around me. 
And so you're curiously observing is one way. What else do you do to kind of fill that time? If you're not having that social interaction, you don't feel like you're fitting in. What advice can you get? There's a lot of people out there feel that way, even well into adulthood. What advice can you bring them in terms of where they can find their place, where they can find a, a rung on the ladder to hold on to? What I think happens is a lot of people try to move away from it. And I'm a big proponent of heading to it and going through it. And so I learned to become very reflective. I, I probably have about, you know, maybe 40 or 50 journals all through the house on the go. And I write a lot of my thoughts down. You know, I try to create different models for my thoughts that make sense. So I spent a lot of time being very reflective. Up until just recently, I think we got our, our, our TV between 2003 and 2013. We had no television in the house. And so I spent a lot of time just sort of reflecting trying to create connection points and trying to see what do I observe and, and what can I do. And, and there's no easy way to that. I, I think um, there's probably a significant amount of pain that, that I've blocked out in my head. I, I've also been very fortunate in the sense that while I went through all of that, um, I had a little bit of a sense of humor when, when I was younger. So I, I could be funny. Um, I, was, I was able to dance real well. So I, you know, I, I had a couple of things that would help me out to navigate high school um, you know, being funny and being able to dance, uh, you know, is, is, is probably plenty. And so I think those things protected me from a lot of uh, psychological pain that people experience going through high school. You know, I, I, I didn't have too much of it. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Some kids want to be doctors. They're still going to have to go to university. And there's going to have to be some protocol to decide, you know, who gets to cut me open. But other people don't need to go. A Google certificate may be fine. A micro-credential may be fine. I'm looking for a TikTok expert right now. I don't need them to go to university and, and have a degree in TikTok, right? I, I just need to look and see who, who's making this work. Education matters. Education is the bedrock of society. And as Nelson Mandela said, our most important asset. And Dwayne Matthews, you'll soon learn, has some bold and I believe absolutely beautiful ideas on how we can, in fact, teach our children well. Dwayne, after uh, high school, you choose the University of Windsor, and they're so proud of you. I've watched some of the videos that they talk about. Why the University of Windsor? First off, like most people in, in high school, when I went, um, you know, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Like people always say, you know, Dwayne was uh, teaching a calling. It actually wasn't. Um, I had no idea that I wanted to be a teacher. Actually, how I became a teacher is I had taken just about every social science and every philosophy course that I could put my hands on. I'd run out of runway. So I was at the registrar's office thinking, um, you know, I'm, I'm here to pay off my school loans and make some payments. And my ex-girlfriend at the time, who is now my wife, she was in the line. And she said to me, um, hey, what are you doing after school? We hadn't spoken for months and I was so keen on talking to her. I said, you know, I, I don't really know. And she literally reached over and said, their teacher applications right here. I'm taking one. Do you want one? And that's, that's how I became a teacher. So it wasn't, you know, there was no magical calling or m no purpose that I knew of. I did it and uh, I was probably about 50 pounds bigger. If you can imagine, you know, my pants is, is, is hanging a little low. Um, my hair is a little long. And I walk into a kindergarten class in Anderton, and the teacher's name was Mrs. La Liberty. I walked in there on a Friday, and she said, on Monday, 
you're going to have to sing to these kids all day because they don't respond to speaking. They only respond to the songs. And she gave me a songbook. And on Monday, you know, here I am at about 2.30. I'm singing to little kindergarten kids. And there's probably three or four teachers at the door looking in because everybody thought it was, it was pretty entertaining. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. That was one of my great experiences at, at the University of Windsor. Um, I went there because I knew that there was a significant Caribbean community there. And I wanted to go to a place where I would feel that, you know, there was a significant amount of safety for me. Um, and I just knew that my mom said, you have to go to university. Um, your life depends on it. And she didn't mean my life later on. She meant my life right then. <laughs> she, she would have killed me if I didn't go. So, so, yeah. so between your mom threatening you with your life and your ex-girlfriend that you just want to spend time in, you end up as an educator, which I love. But you talk about in one of your interviews, going to an inner city school, how you, you kind of related to the people there because in many ways they were isolated. And you'd kind of spent that time. Take us to that time where you really start to really feel that you're getting footing and you belong in this world of helping kids get to where they want to go. There was a, a school called Heron Park. And Heron Park was in the, the Morningside and Lawrence neighborhood. It's, it's no longer a school. But at that school, I, I made some great connections with parents. And I really got to understand some of the structural disconnects in culture that were very impactful. I'll give you one example. There was uh, a moment where, you know, it was like minus 15 outside and there was a, a new student and she was quite young, very small. I think she might've been grade one. And she, came, she just came from Guyana. And in the Caribbean, most of the schools have walls. So kids just kind of move around through the school. But here, because it's open, we have lots of supervision. It's very important in Canada that you have teachers in places outside to make sure that kids are being supervised and to make sure that, you know, nobody's wandering off or no one's coming in. I went to school in the Caribbean. There was a wall and there was a security guard at the front. Nobody went in or out unless they went through that security guard. Here comes this parent in the dead of winter. They just landed. It's minus 15. And the dad is beside himself that the kids are going outside. So he tells his daughter, that's crazy. You stay in the class. The daughter's in the class and the teacher's obviously saying, hey, you got to go outside. This is a point of contention. So he comes to the office and he starts to have a conversation with the, the principal. In Trinidad, where I'm from, um, and, you know, a lot of Guyana as well, we have a term, we call it grand charging, which is like talking loud and, and gesticulating with your hands. But there's no real intention for it. It's more of an expression of frustration. And once he started doing that, the principal said, you know, I feel threatened. And she called the police. The police came and then he had a restraining order. And so then his daughter had to keep on going outside while he has a restraining order. I realized from, from that looking when the principal called me and said, you know, this is what happened. And I said, no, I, I go, there was no bad intention at all on his part. Like this was, there's a nuance. You just had a cultural miss. And that cultural miss created this scenario that, you know, was, was uncomfortable for all involved, the daughter, the principal, and the father. Um, and so I realized that there are these cultural misses, these disconnections based on our premises. There are lots of premises um, that we all had in that scenario. And once we have that and it compounds, um, it, it, it can have a pretty big impact. And so I realized that there was an opportunity to contribute there. And so you, you have this Great experience is inner city school. You start, you're getting this phenomenal relationships with parents. You're some way a bridge. But then you make a big 
changing your life and head off to Peru to teach. How did that come about? I, I would love to tell you that it was a master design on my part, but it, it was actually um, the people often compliment me and say, hey, Dwayne, you know, we, we think you're pretty smart. And I, I said, no, actually, I've just married really well. My, my wife is significantly smarter than I am. When we finished school, we both sort of came and sat down at the table. And I said, you know, let's talk about assets and liabilities. What assets do you have? What assets do I have? I had no assets to bring to the relationship and she had none, but we both had the liability of OSAP. We, we both owed about $35,000 in OSAP. So we really believed in equity at the beginning of our relationship because there we were seven grand in debt together. And so I said, you know, we need to lock down and just pay off everything. And she said, I want to travel. But maybe you're not seeing what I'm seeing. You know, she came back to me a couple of weeks after and said, I found an opportunity for us to travel and pay off our debt. That's what I did. We, we, we went to Peru. We had really no idea. I mean, this is 2003. The internet was quite young. There weren't very many pictures, if you can imagine that. Um, we looked for pictures in Peru and we couldn't find any. Then we get there and it is a completely different world. So I go from an inner city school in probably one of the tougher parts of Toronto to Franklin D. Roosevelt, which at the time was in the top three best schools in South America, one of the best private schools in the world and significantly, extremely advanced. And so it was a really great opportunity for me to look and observe these two experiences in these two worlds. Peru changed my life. It absolutely changed my life. I think I came back a different person. From what I understand, you were in Peru and a trip into a jungle completely transformed your life again. We decided that we wanted to go to, to the Amazon and we were going to drive to the highlands. And so as you're driving through this road, there is a, a town called La Oroya. At the time, it might have been one of the, the dirtiest, most polluted towns in the world. When I stopped, you know, I, I was having a conversation with some of the people from the town and there was a really high amount of children that had mercury in their blood. And, and I had this, like a gut-wrenching, we should just boycott, right? Because we realized that it was a mining company um, or a series of mining companies that were North American. And, and it, it made me realize something, that in North America, our life is like a grocery store, a really nice one. And so, you know, everything in the front is really nice. The apples are shined really nice. Everything is organized. But if we go through that door in the back into the butcher shop, where all the stuff comes in. It's a little bit more messy. It's a little bit more grimy. I realized that a lot of the emerging world was the back of the grocery store to our emerged world. These people were sort of forgotten. The people there said, no, we, we, we don't want to boycott. These mining companies, they give us work. They go, we need the technology to be cleaner. That little nuance um, encouraged me to start a company that looked at technology scouting, all kinds of technology, all kinds of innovation that would shift a paradigm. So I came back, I knew absolutely nothing about business, but I, I felt compelled. You know, we, we went, we started this company and we did that for a while. I exited the company and then I started a completely new company and that failed. And the failure was traumatic. From that failure, I sat back and I thought about what are the two things that are actually meaningful and purposeful to me? And one, it was looking at the convergence of fourth industrial revolution technology and education and the fact that not very many people had an eye on that convergence and it was going to have a profound impact. 
This is Tony Chapman. You can subscribe to Chatter That Matters wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, Dwayne Matthews is building on what he just talked about, education and technology, and our country's so much better for it. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. I'd like to give a big shout out to RBC's Future Launch, a $500 million decade-long commitment to help prepare 3 million youth for the future of work. And how? Providing young people access to meaningful employment through work experience, skills development opportunities, networking solutions, and mental well-being support and services. Powering today's youth for the jobs of tomorrow, that matters to RBC. Welcome back to Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. My guest is Dwayne Matthews, a sought-after contributor to the mainstream media and policy-forming conferences on the future of education. So you're just talking about what I really like, and I could see your eyes shine. This is one thing about the podcast is they can never see it, but I could just see you lean into this epiphany that what all of this traveling and bouncing around, you're now putting together technology and education. What was your first observations in that era? There was this conversation happening should schools have technology or not? When I sort of looked back at a 50,000-foot view across time, I realized that school was always about technology. Formal education at scale has always been about technology. We used 600-year-old technology, the printed book. We had supporting technology, 1662, the pencil, 1888, the pen, 1801, the blackboard. We put all those things together into an architectural structure We believed in it so much that we said we would take our children, the things that were most important to us, we would send them to strangers who may or may not be psychologically abusive, and we would hope that at the end of that, that if they could go through each stage gate, that they would get into some kind of post-secondary, and that would impact the prosperity of their life and our overall economy. With books, we're able to take ideas We're able to synthesize those ideas across space and time. The limitation of the book is that we couldn't travel with a lot of them. We had to memorize. You find that most societies on on the planet that that are post-secondary educated societies sit probably somewhere around 35%. Canada is actually the most, the highest post-secondary educated population on planet Earth at 50%. In that, here we have this technology that's converging and it transforms our economy. Today, we have the fourth industrial revolution where we have a number of different technologies that are converging, powered by you know, a doubling of our computer processing and computer storage power. Because of the shift from you know, pre-book formal school, which is agriculture, 98% of us are in agriculture, to now 2% of us in our agriculture, Now we have a similar type paradigm shift. The difference is the speed. And so the speed is very disorienting. The convergence of that on economy, on prosperity, must be powered by education. And it's not just about your child, but it's about the national security of a country and the national security of a region. But it's not happening in schools, is it? I mean, when I look at my nieces, when I talk to parents that are so frustrated by not only we're using this technology, but it doesn't seem like we're changing the way we teach. I look at kids on computer games, mission critical decisions, they're collaborating, they're challenging, they've got tactics, they're rethinking the algorithms each time. 
and they'll spend six hours. You have to pull them off, drag them off. But when it comes to school, you're just not seeing that appetite for learning. Why is that? What are we going to do about that? So if you think about the technology that I talked about before, the book, the adult teaches the child how to read. The adult teaches the child how to write. The adult uses the blackboard, right? Like you get a special permission to go on the blackboard. And so now all of a sudden you have, you know, 11 billion transistors on a single device and your nine-year-old is navigating it much faster than you are. Never mind nine, your four-year-old is navigating it much faster than you are. So the role of the educator has to change. The other component is education is not unique. Innovation of, or the diffusion of innovation has a certain speed to it. The first component is usually substitution. So any incumbent structure taking on new innovation, the first thing that they try to do is they try to substitute something that they're already doing with the new innovation. And we see that in schools. So, you know, there's a smart board. It's the same blackboard. You can just touch it. But it's the same form factor. Teacher at the front, board at the front, all the kids looking synchronously. The other problem is that we over-index on the importance of synchronous timing. We believe that the best way to teach kids is for the sage to be at the front or side of the stage and holding court. We don't consider what kind of opportunities we have if we embrace asynchronous. So you talked about kids in real time. They learn on video games. How do they know what to do on video games? Trial and error. YouTube, community, all of the above, facilitator, right? They have a mix when they're very focused on a desired outcome, how they go about doing that. So they've already started showing us what the future of education is just by how they learn things that they're most interested in. I've got biases, but I look at a, it seems like our educational system, we are very heavy on the handlers and the bureaucracy, which really stars what we need to do is to pour some of this thinking into a classroom. What would you do to transform our schools? I would separate a blue team and a red team. Blue team would be incremental. So blue team is what are we doing now? How do we make incremental changes? So that's sort of the status quo with an idea of we're going to substitute and make some incremental changes. Then I would create a red team. We need to create a series of experiments and the experiments need to have a certain success criteria. So we need to backstop the experiment to make sure that if we put kids in there, they don't fail, right? But we fail and we fail quickly and we learn quickly from what to do. And then I would create a, a very small experiment for Red Team. I would invite teachers, parents, and students to be a part of it. And I would slowly place that Red Team experiment into schools around the city. And then I would allow it to flourish. If it's successful, it will eventually cannibalize Blue Team. I call that building a bridge to the future. So a lot of the challenges that I see is people like, hey, we just want to disband um, this one system and start another. That's actually well documented by Clayton Christensen um, in The Innovator's Dilemma. It's a very precarious business to rip off a Band-Aid and start something. So how do we manage that transition? I think we can manage that transition in public schools, and, and there are vehicles to do that in examples around the world. But I think the very first key component is to get very, very focused on personalized education and get very, very focused on how do we leverage analog and digital tools to personalize the education into time shift. Well, we haven't changed the schedule, even though science will say smaller 
modules with breaks in between might be a better way to educate. But we never seem to move that way. So you're, you've got this idea of building a bridge to the future. But part of the problem is you've got to have government come on board. You have to have unions come on board. You have to have parents come on board. How do we start getting alignment there so they'd say, you know what, I really want to try the, the blue and red. I'm not worried about failure. I'm not worried about fearing how I'm going to look. I'm going to embrace this because the kids are the hero of the story, not me. Instead of trying to say, hey, look, we need to get all the government on board, all the parents on board, all the union on board. We don't need to do that. What we need to do is to say, I have a small experiment. And then we say to parents, if you're interested, you know, sign on. Say that you'll have your kid come here. And we say to teachers, if you're interested, sign on. If the experiment's good enough and parents hear about it, they'll say, hey, I, I want my kid in, in that. I'll give you an example. I did an asynchronous project with my son when, when we had the second lockdown. We're going to follow the ultradium rhythm to the T, which is 90 minutes of learn time, 20 minutes of absolutely nothing. No digital, no thinking, just kind of lying and doing what's called consolidation. We're going to use a specific AI platform that I have access to that uses a technique called spaced repetition. And spaced repetition is essentially a really cool way to use flashcards to go through and memorize and understand information. And we're going to see how long it takes us to do this week of work. It took us about a day. He's a typical 12-year-old boy that just wants to get to his PlayStation on the weekend. So then what do we do? So then we say, you know what, let's do a project on NFTs. I have a, a keynote coming up. And I said, well, you can create something that I include in my presentation. I'll give you 10% of my presentation. We're now at two days. We've done a week's worth of work, a presentation. He goes snowboarding with his mom and his sister. So think about how rich the two-day experience was. So here's a challenge, Tony. The challenge is, and, and we've just realized this during the pandemic, is we need a place for kids to go so parents can work. That doesn't go away, whether we want to admit it or not, right? So we have a percentage of parents that can work with kids home, and we have the vast majority that can't. I would challenge teachers and parents to say, if, if we could do requirement in two hours, what could we do with the other four hours? What could you do if you put the requirements inside of two hours and those requirements were personalized? You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. We have a great opportunity, and I'm radically optimistic. I had a conversation with the Prime Minister, and the conversation was really, we're doing it because it's a strength. If we want the hospital systems, we're going to need as many people as possible making six figures. So we need to get on with it. And if we look at the overall system, we can see inefficiencies. Those inefficiencies, we need to make more efficient. What's the key message? When an audience brings you in, what do you talk about and what do you hope happens after your talk? What we typically do is we, we have a small frame and we see within that frame, but to expand the frame a little bit. So I show, here's where we've traveled across time and here's the role of education. Most people in education are like, you know, we send our kids to school so they can learn to read. Not true. Parents can teach kids how to read. Kids can teach themselves how to read. We have technology to do that today. We send kids to school because we're preparing them to be contributors to society in hopes that if they contribute to society, 
the water sort of goes up for everyone and there's more prosperity. Now, do we nail that every time? No, but that's the, that's the goal. And so as it shifts, as the innovation shifts, we have an opportunity to be a lot more effective and efficient with that. Kids can find their passion and purpose outside of school, but I like the idea of creating space for them to pursue it. And I like the idea of thinking about if there are certain requirements that we need to make sure that the overall society is prosperous, then we can cover those two things as well. And we can also figure out how do we socialize and deal with the last bit of challenges that we need to solve. What are you up to? I mean, technology, you're an entrepreneur, you're an educator. What's the world going to read about when they read about Dwayne Matthews in the next uh, decade? I don't know if they're going to read about me, but I know that the, the things that I'm really interested in creating is putting together a model that creates a pipeline or a bridge um, and to do that in an innovative way. So now I'm, I'm the head of School of Innovation and Partnerships at OVS. And what do we do is we use an asynchronous student success model where we bring in artificial intelligence, we bring in neurotechnology, um, all of these things that are ev- evidence-based to increase cognitive ability and academic performance and in time shift and crunch time. And then we take that to our partners all around the world. And we now start saying, okay, what would you do if we're able to create this? And so I'm helping partners to create future of learning lab models, right? So what does that future of learning lab do? You know, I, I have a number of before the metaverse was the metaverse, uh, you know, through tomorrow now learning labs, we were doing experiments in 2020, 2019. And some of those are up on the web. And so people reach out. They're like, well, how do you do that? And a lot of times we see, you know, typical substitution. Somebody goes into a metaverse type space and they create a physical school that looks like a school. You know, I'm like, why, why would I create a space that looks like a school? Um, I don't want kids to be in the box. I want them to, to have different experiences that are otherworldly, that really stretch their imagination, that are creative and beautiful. How do we create those kinds of opportunities? Um, for students, how do we get them to say, look, there's two paths. There's, there's passion and there's practicality and you need to know both, right? If you're fortunate, passion can really work out. If you don't know, like me, I didn't have any passion when I was a kid. I didn't know what I wanted to do besides swim. And, you know, there's two things that I liked when I was a kid. I liked swimming. I wanted to swim in the Olympics and I liked my girlfriend. I married her. So I'm 50% successful based on what I wanted to do to create these future of learning lab models that can sit inside of schools all around the world and act as an incubator for, for students and for models. I think that would be, you know, if, if I could work on that for the rest of my life, um, I probably would do it till I'm 102. And how would people get hold of you? How, what's the best way? I'll obviously include all your, all your contacts in my show notes, but just what to the radio audience and podcast audience, I like what this guy has to say. Where do they go? LinkedIn is probably the best way to find me. And you can also reach out to me at Instagram. I am doing Matthews. And if not there, um, you know, you can find me at ontariovirtualschool.ca. It's Matthews at ontariovirtualschool.ca. And you can reach me there as well. What I really like about you is you're an observer. And you were an observer when you were kind of stuck, your uncle, the oil refinery, and all you had is your journals, but you reflected and observed. A lot of people just spend their whole life just looking in. But the second thing I was really fascinated about, it's a great lesson in life for people listening, is you also are a reframer. You're not just observing, you're thinking about alternatives. A lot of people just run and race to the desired outcome, but not really think of the, the cause. The final thing, which I, and I think is such a powerful lesson for everybody listening, 
is your bridge analogy. I've observed, I think this is our desired outcome. Pulling off a Band-Aid, erasing things is not the answer. The answer is start with a project, start with an experiment. And as that experiment takes hold and we start seeing the results and we're willing to fail and course correct, and as we start seeing the success that we're after, share that because it's the population society that's going to come in there and go, that's a better mousetrap, therefore we need to do it. And I think that that is a great lesson in life, not just in education, but through life, observe desired outcome and do it through a series of, of proof points. And maybe that's going to kind of create the change that get Canada back to being number one in education and making sure that when people graduate with $35,000 in debt, they're celebrating it because they've had such a personalized experience brought through people like you that I think that they're just set up for the future. So thank you very much. And, you know, you said that I'm an observer and I, I think you're a great active listener because, you know, we've been talking for quite a while and, and you pulled out those themes. But here's the thing. Here's where we are. Do you remember when we had the TV VCR DVD contraptions? right? They were like these squares. And, you know, if there are people younger that are listening, they have the big tube in the back. And, you know, we all did that because we're like, this is the future. We don't know where it's going, but this is the future. Think about today. There are no TVs like that. There's no such thing as a VHS. My, my son doesn't know what that is. He saw one in a box and didn't know what it was. Um, and there are no DVDs. We actually look at our movies now on, you know, tablets and with our noise cancellation headphones um, so that's a, that's a, a pretty huge shift and we don't sell any Ford focuses in Canada, no entry-level cars, There are a few entry-level cars left, right? Chevy doesn't sell any, Ford doesn't sell any. And here's an interesting story as to why, and I, you know, this will be my last point. I was having a conversation with my mentor a long time ago, his name's Ben DuPont and he's the brother-in-law of Dr. Oz. And you know, we, we were having this conversation around cell phones. And our assumption was that there's going to be a lot of brain cancer because kids will be talking on the phone for hours like we did. What we realized is that kids don't talk on the phone for hours. I can't remember the last time I saw any kid holding a phone up to the air. They do a lot of texting. So we're like, well, what industry did that impact? And in a weird way, it impacted entry-level cars. Because when I was 16, the only thing that I wanted to do was get my driver's license because I needed to drive everywhere to make these shallow connections with all my friends. Now comes this device and A, I'm not talking on it. B, I can make tons of shallow connections with thousands of people. So I, I don't really have the need to drive anywhere. When we look at that complexity, we really have to think about what's the key piece. Well, the key piece is to have strong mental frameworks the key piece is to understand how we learn. And the key piece is to be able to select the right habits or lead measures to move us into the direction with the technological tools that we find around us. And I think if, if, if there's one thing that I would say, people always say, doing you're the technology guy. I say, no, I'm, I'm, I'm really the mental frameworks guy. I would say that would be my piece to leave. If we're able to bestow that on kids, it doesn't really matter what technological tool comes along, whether it be a phone of, you know, VR. Once you're able to start thinking about learning how to learn, learning how to create mental frameworks and use them, and learning how to create those desired habits, I think the kids, I'm, I'm very optimistic about where they go. Joining me now on the show is Christina Cleveland. She's the Senior Director of Learning and Performance 
strategy and innovation. That's quite a title, Christina. Comes with a big mandate. I wanted to talk to you about training and how it's changing, how it's going to impact sort of the future of work. What I've been reading is that it's no longer about getting an education or an occasional top up, that the future is going to belong to people that are sort of embarked in this journey of continuous learning. Do you agree? Oh, absolutely. I mean, just think about how easy it is to get access to information. So much information is at our fingertips, and the pace at which we're experiencing change is certainly impacting how much we need to know. And so that uh, muscle of, you know, adapting quickly and always learning um, is a key pillar in our leadership model and certainly something that we see being a key part of the future of work. When it comes to work-life balance, the pushback is we're asking so much now of the employee, and I have to believe that training is a massive time commitment. How do you ensure that people have the time and the mental bandwidth to get the kind of learning they deserve? One of the things that we hear a lot from uh, our employees is that you know they are struggling to find the time to learn. If they do make the time to learn when they arrive, they might uh, be distracted um, when they're participating in a particular program, and so. You have to think about the fact that it's very user-centric and it is up to the actual individual to give themselves the gift of that focus, right? If you you don't have to say you're going to participate in a six-week program, but if you're going to be there for a one-hour webinar or participate in a um, you know 15-minute e-learning course, allow yourself the gift of focus. Shut down all other distractions so that you can truly be present in the moment. You can absorb the information. It'll take you less time, and you'll be you'll get a better result um, in the end. What role is technology playing in helping you not only create content, but get the training out to a larger audience and a more engaged audience? It is at the core of uh, everything that we're doing now. I think there's so much about technology that enables the way that we're able to serve up um, learning and, and resources, performance support resources to our employees. One of the things that we've been working on is adaptive micro learning um, and kind of curating those experiences so that, you know, the AI um, in the technology enabling the delivery of this learning can actually help us to assess both capability, but as well as confidence so that we can see where somebody may think that they know something, but they don't really feel that degree of confidence. So that adaptive micro learning allows us to uh, gamify the experience a little bit, keep learners engaged, but certainly helps us to adapt the way that we're delivering content to our users. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. Hi, it's Tony Chapman. Thanks for listening. Let's chat soon.